mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. guys, it's Candice. We really thought we would have everything figured out by the time we're in our 30s, but guess what? We don't. I don't. And that's cool. If you don't either, don't worry. You're in good company. Uh, I'm so happy to be here with you guys today. We've got a great episode for you, especially all you writers out there or any sci-fi fantasy loving novel readers. Buckle up, Buttercup, because it's on. Uh, As you can tell, Kayla is not joining us today. If you follow her on social media, uh, which you should if you don't, what are you doing here if you don't follow her? Like, get on it. Uh, But her and her husband have just welcomed their baby boy into the world. And so she is with her family right now, taking some mama time and some family time. So we're sending them all of our love and all of our support. And while their home together is a family, we're going to just buckle up here as our directionally challenged family. And we are going to be joined today by Lee Bardugo. Lee is a number one New York Times bestselling author of fantasy novels and the creator of The Grishaverse, which is also now a Netflix original series. 
in the Grishaverse spans the Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the Language of Thorns, and King of Scars, with even more to come. Lee's short stories can be found in multiple anthologies, including the best American science fiction and fantasy. Her other works include Wonder Woman, Warbringer, and Ninth House, which is a Goodreads Choice winner for Best Fantasy of 2019, which is also being developed for television by Amazon Studios. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Guys, get ready for a wonderful, fantastical conversation with Lee Bardugo. Oh, you can hear my birds in my house. Oh, those are your actual birds in your house? No, they're birds outside my house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like my waiting for peacocks. you. Yes. <laughs> to like all of a sudden have birds like fly through the frame. It's all part of your mystique. Yeah. That's how I arrive at every event. They just a cloak full of ravens. No, no. We just have a very, uh, we live near the mountains. And so we have a lot of wildlife. Oh, I love that. I actually just moved into a house where I've learned basically my little like backyard porch area is essentially a bird aviary. And it's just so beautiful. And all the birds come in and they drink water out of the fountains. And then I realized the only downside to that is my car will never be clean again. Like I will always drive with some bird caca. Do you not have a like a garage or a carport or anything? I mean, I do, but I'm like, here's the deal. I grew up in Florida. That's where I got my driver's license. Like, no offense to Florida drivers. I am one. You know, tight parking spaces and just driving in general is not my strong suit. So I usually... I try to avoid tight parking garages at all uh, at all costs. <laughs> so my car is now just amongst the birds, but I love the birds. I'm all about the birds. I feel like they it's a very do you do you write to anything like do you write when you are writing outside? Do you listen to music? Do you have like a routine? It depends what I'm working on. I tend to draft all of my books to a particular composer named Ludovico Einaudi. And I have what I usually end up having is one or two songs that are kind of the songs for the book that have the tone of the book. And I just listen to them on repeat, uh, especially when I'm drafting. When I get into revision, that's when I start to use like playlist songs to kind of mock me into particular characters and moments. Do each of your characters have their own like essentially playlist or band or artist? When when I was writing Six of Crows, each of the characters definitely had a song. But for books that have come later, I haven't done as much with alternating POV. And so that hasn't been as much of a necessary. So it's more like a mood, like trying to get into the mood of the moment. Yeah, well, music has obviously been a big part of your life. That was, a, you know, a chapter within your youth. You also had like an, in, you were an, a musician, you know, you had in a band. <laughs> I mean, that's a really generous way of looking at um, the laziest band in Los Angeles. So I appreciate that. But it's just beautiful to hear that even after all those years, it's still a part of your creative process. I think something that we've all kind of realized in this, like, you know, 20 post 2020, whatever world we're living in, if we want to call it the pandemic, you know, post COVID world, even though we're still in COVID, what we've all started to kind of realize as a society is the in generation is that we do not necessarily want to be defined by, in my opinion, one thing in our life where maybe we'd all been caught up on 
you know, a singular job or this is what we do and this is our path and you go to school and you get this degree and then this is who you are in the world. And I think that this period of time, while there are so many tragic elements to it, a beautiful part is how we've all kind of rediscovered creative loves or, you know, new passions. And so just to hear that you started really focusing in on your writing more in your 30s, I think, which was ahead of the curve to what I think a lot of people have been doing lately. It was there, what what I mean, was... Again, I think this is a, a very generous, but wildly incorrect take on my on my uh on my youth and my life as a writer i wanted to be a writer from the time i was a kid i wanted to be a novelist from the time i was a kid this wasn't about focus this was about the fact that one i had no idea what i was doing and two i think i had been sent some very are we allowed to swear absolutely okay (laughs) so some very bullshit messages from culture about what it means to be a creative person or to be a working writer or artist or anything that doesn't sort of follow a prescribed career path. And I think one of my goals now that I have attained some success is to make sure that every opportunity I have, I'm kind of busting through those myths. But it wasn't that I started to focus in my 30s. It was that in my 30s, I essentially hit a kind of rock bottom and managed to discard many of the ideas that I had about being a creative person and a lot of the perfectionism that had hounded me and sat down and wrote a damn book, which I had not been able to do before then. I had started many times, but I had never been able to finish a book before. And I think that's something that plagues a lot of people. You have a great idea, but you have no idea how to execute. What was the thought process in, in thinking that like you weren't able to finish the book before? Was it singular to to the idea of perfectionism, imposter syndrome, or did you just have this idea of what an author was or who an author was and you didn't feel like you fit that for some well, reason? Part of it came from not knowing my process, which I think is one of the most essential parts of being a working writer or artist. So I didn't really know how to outline a book. I didn't even know that one did outline a book. I had not done the work of learning what my processes could be. And so I would get an idea and I would have a lot of momentum. And then I would write the first, you know, the first chapter, the first three chapters, essentially the first act of the book, which is the most fun act, right? It's where you're introducing all of the characters and you're throwing all of the doors open. But the meat of the book, the second act, the adventure of the book, the story, I had no idea where I was going. And so I would just stop. I, I think it's sort of like, you know, if you haven't been for a run in a long time, which I certainly haven't, but if you haven't been to, for a run in a long time and you start running and you're like, this is amazing, I feel fantastic. And about 10 seconds later, you're like, I'm going to die because you really don't have that momentum carrying you forward anymore. And you need to then have a, a path, a process to take you forward. And I think too, you know, when I talk about culture, when we look at the way creative people are depicted in culture, we see, you know, if you, if you see a writer in a movie or a TV show, they get the idea or they go through the tragic breakup, and then you see them sort of working in a wild fit of inspiration, and you get a montage of them crumpling up papers and throwing them into a trash can. And and then at the end, they type the end. They have a stack of pages, or they have a painting, or they have a play that they've put on. And what you don't see is um, how much revision is a part of that, and that there is no perfect first draft, that there is no But that struggle and that feeling of failure and that experience of what you want it to be not matching up to the thing in your head and to the thing on the page, you don't see that ever. It would be very boring to watch that that process. But because of that, we don't really understand that when we set out as creatives to write or create, whether it be a podcast, an album, a painting, a book, 
we are comparing our first drafts to the finished drafts, to the fourth or fifth or sixth or 10th drafts of people we respect and that you cannot win in that situation because your first draft is never going to be that good. Do you think that there was also an element of, I know you've talked about how, you know, you have a single, you have a single mother who raised you, you know, and watching her just busting her ass and that you then wanted to just really focus on more of a sure thing of a trajectory? I mean, no, because I had no marketable skills. Like I was an English major. I was an English major in college. I, I, you know, like I can barely calculate tax when the tip comes. So for me, it was, um, you know, when I came out of school, I got a job at an ad agency. Like I had to have a job coming out of school and it was absolutely nightmarish. And then you know, I became a temp and then I ended up being a copywriter and I worked in makeup and special effects for a few years. I had a lot of jobs, which I think was actually probably pretty good for me. But at the time felt like I was really stumbling from one thing to the next and, and didn't really have have an idea of, of what I was going to do with my life. I, I thought I was going to be a writer and that all these jobs were just a way to pay the bills and pay the rent. But when I hit 30, there was this moment, not a moment, there was a prolonged state, a kind of like, you know, like ditch of doubt that I fell into that I thought, well, maybe I'm never going to do this. I've tried a bunch of times. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I'm just going to be one of the countless people out there who, who had a dream and didn't get it, you know, who didn't, who just never executed. How many people do I meet who say, you know, I want to write a book or have a story in me and they never get to see that reach fruition. Is there a surprising lesson that you've taken with you in your life from one of the odd jobs that you had at that time. I genuinely, I think it is, of course, it's all like hindsight is twenty twenty, and it can be such a blessing to have, find yourself in these jobs you never normally would have like really even gone after, but they kind of found you at a time when you needed the paycheck. But I feel like those are sometimes like these yummy little sweet bits of life that are there to kind of like teach you something that you're going to need later on. Oh, gosh. I mean, you're so right that it's easy to kind of look back and be like, here are the 10 jobs I had and the way that they <laughs> that they made me equipped for the dream job I never knew I was going to get. But at the same time, I, I guess I would say two things. One is that when you are embarking on these jobs and you are living sort of in the frustration of them or the desire to see your, or to have your potential seen or to to do your best, to, to do something good and do something you're excited about. When you're living in the frustration of that, it's hard. You can't help but wonder if it's if it's the whole story, if it's the whole future, or if it's just a footnote, right? Is it just an anecdote I'm going to talk about on a podcast someday? Or is this what my life is going to be? And that is a, a, a sort of really a painful and difficult place to, to exist in and that I think most people have to. But the second part of that, I would say, is I don't trust people who have never had a job they didn't like. I don't trust anybody who's never had to hustle. I don't trust anybody who's never had that feeling on a Sunday night of dread, who's never had a boss that treated them badly or who, who didn't, you know, see what they were capable of. It's not that I think everybody should have to suffer. I don't. But I also think that being in those situations give you, gives you an appreciation once you do get to the thing that you've always wanted to do. And it also makes you really respect the people who are part of your team and, and a part of, you know, helping to build this thing with you because you don't, you don't get to be a best-selling author and you don't get to stay a best-selling author without a lot of people putting just a shit ton of time and effort into your career and really never reaping the glory from that. 
you know, the, the people who are behind the scenes, who are doing the thankless tasks, who are working. I mean, publishing is, I think, like most kinds of media, really, there's not a lot of pay there. There's a lot of people who want those jobs. And so you have a lot of people who are, you know, barely able to make their rent and who are doing their damnedest for you. And, and I think that it gives you an appreciation for that and to not be a dick boss. Yes. And then when you've had the experience of having a dick boss or just, you know, you can actually appreciate the time and effort and the team that then it surrounds you at a different point in life. I do want to also talk about, you know, you mentioned that you've always wanted to be a writer and that just your love of language. And and I just heard you speak somewhere else about your grandfather and just the role that he played within your life. And so could you tell us a little bit about him? So we moved in with my grandparents when I was just two months old. My mom had left my biological father. She'd moved back to the U.S. and she went back to school. And we lived with my grandparents. So she basically had free childcare. So shout out to them. And my grandfather was this kind of contradiction. He was, uh, I can't even say he was like a working class guy. He came from like just terrible poverty growing up in Boston and then came to the West Coast and built, you know, a life for himself and, and and a, you know, a home and a family and a situation for himself. He was a difficult guy. He was He was very old school. You know, they didn't do therapy back then, especially for men. And he, I think, probably had some very serious issues with depression. So he could be kind of this storm that came into your life that was either full of focus and warmth and fun, or he could be just incredibly cruel. But at the same time, he was the person who absolutely instilled in me a love for language, who had me read the Ballad of Reading Jail out loud to him. That is a long ass poem, let me tell you, <laughs> who, you know, introduced me to. How old are to- you? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, we were th- probably six, you know, <laughs> to read. He was like, here, read this. Oscar you got to start somewhere. Forget Dr. <laughs> Seuss. We're jumping right in. <laughs> Pretty much. It was as long as you're reading. It's it's all good. And he, you know, loved like old school books. He loved Anthony Adverse and Kipling and a lot of things that have very much fallen out of fashion at this point. But he really he loved words. And I think, you know, in another life, he would have had a when he didn't have to work as hard, when there were more opportunities to him, uh, open to him, it would have been, I really wonder what he would have accomplished. But he also had this kind of like high culture, low culture thing happening where like he loved opera and Puccini and Verity, but also, you know, had these like old Marty Robbins records, you know, like that El Paso song and so forth. So that was kind of what I grew up in. And I think it it's very, that sensibility is just deep in my work, like in, in everything that I write. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good. Because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGE right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly.
And we're back. And and something I read, you had mentioned that you'd come home to school on a come home from school on occasion, and he'd say, "Tell me some lies," and that just stuck in my head. And I love that so much. I have a six year old, and and so and then sometimes you know this is the perfect time where they're kind of figuring out fibbing a little bit, you know, and then they but then they don't know how to feel about it. They're just like exploring it. And on one hand, I want to celebrate the creativity of some of these ridiculous <laughs> stories she comes up with, and on the other hand, I gotta like put my foot down. But I just loved this concept so much. And and I remember my mom, when I was young, would have me, we'd make up stories. That was a lot of our bedtime stories. And and so just wondering, like, if if you could expand on when you were younger, this idea that an adult is welcoming you in saying, you know, it's okay, like, let's dream, let's imagine this different world, like this other version of what it means to lie in a creative, you know, storytelling sense. Um, You know... There wasn't a whole lot happening in the San Fernando Valley, in this particular pocket of the San Fernando Valley when I was growing up. There, you know, we lived up against this hill that was kind of attained mythic proportions in my childhood memory. It, it was probably like a, you know, a lump of rock, but I have a very clear memory of watching a thunderstorm and watching half the hill slide into the backyard. I remember seeing coyotes up there and, and even a mountain lion at one point. And it, we would sit facing this hill and not really looking at each other, just looking out. When he said, tell me some lies, it was an invitation. It was an invitation to tell stories. And I think for a kid, just people wanting to hear you talk is a very empowering and unique thing. Teaching children that they have something worthwhile to say. I think instead of talking down to them or speaking to them in a way that says, you know, these, these are kid things and you talk about kid things and you think about kid things. There was just never that barrier growing up. And it was, I think, very special to sit down with a person you, who is so much larger than life in your world and have them say, I want to hear you talk. I want to hear what you have to say. I don't think particularly for young women, there are many situations where that happens. That is very true. And very beautiful. What what were you reading at that? Once you started figuring out your taste in in literature, uh, is there a specific book that kind of? Oh, I would love to hear what you were reading at that age too. This I, this is always an interesting and in what your kid is reading too, what they're falling in love with. Uh, right now, I mean, my six-year-old is just into reading in general. So it's just she reading like street signs and, you know, what song <laughs> is playing on the radio, trying yeah. to read a menu, like her just her experiencing the world with this new level of understanding is what's more important to her right now. I feel like the books when I was younger, I was I was I was the one that basically went on like, what was it, Spark Notes or monkeynotesomething.com and and was not an avid reader. I The one book that really sticks out is Where the Red Fern Grows, because I think that oh that my. traumatized us all. Yeah, yeah. That and Old Yeller. Yeah, I for me, Swiftly Tilting Planet by Madeline Langle was huge. That trilogy, but particularly that book was something I have a very clear memory of reading for the first time, of being sort of sprawled out on the shag carpet, reading this book and just being so swept up in it. I remember The Witch of Blackbird Pond. There is a book called Cat Witch, which was about a cat that was a witch, which honestly fused together the most important things to my young mind. So that was a big one for me. And it had the most glorious illustrations. I still have my copy of that. I think really early on, 
I was most engaged by stories where of of magic and other worlds. And but I don't think it was until junior high that that really solidified into taste. I kind of, as a kid, read whatever crossed my path. And again, I had was lucky enough to have parents and 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 caretakers, I guess, that who did not care what I was reading as long as I was reading. Yeah, I didn't. I had Nickelodeon and MTV were more what I was focused on at the time. But I mean, don't get me wrong. I watched plenty of Scooby-Doo. Uh, and yeah, I'm so jealous of my anyone I know who's a writer who just like used that time to actually read like every book that was in school or just even like enjoyed reading at that point. I just feel like I missed out on all this and all this really good time because as you get older, I've found, especially recently having kids, that it's really hard for me to be able to sit down and just read until maybe they get a little older. But my turning point was when I turned 18. I'd had a boyfriend at the time who had just finished reading The Alchemist, and he was a very big reader, avid reader. And he was like, oh, yeah, if you need something to read at the beach today, here you go. And and I read it in one afternoon. And and then all of a sudden I was back in the game. Like that's really the turning point of for me. That was the book that got me back in a good one. You know, a few people have read it. It's, you know, somewhat popular, but it's, you know, obviously the root of the hero's journey, which obviously plays so much thematically in the style of uh, literature as well that you write. Did you gravitate towards that within the genre of, of fantasy when from a young age or not really? I mean, I have a very clear memory of being in junior high school and I was not doing well. Like when 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 I entered junior high, I was first of all, I looked like I was 30 when I was 15. Like I just missed that whole like teenage phase. I looked older, I looked wrong, I had bad skin. I had we had, you know, I had just switched schools, my mom had remarried, we had switched neighborhoods, and I was just miserable. I was miserable at home and I was miserable at school. And that's kind of all there is when you're a teenager, that in the mall. And I walked into the library one day and there was a big table of books there that said, discover new worlds. And it was all these sci-fi and fantasy classics. And I picked up Dune by Frank Herbert. It, I think, really changed the course of who I was going to be as a writer and maybe as a person too. You can point to a lot of <laughs> of flaws in that book and and to things that date it. But for me, it was almost like a survival guide to adolescence in the sense that this was a world where being cute and being popular were not important, but being prepared, being clever, even being dangerous were. And that was what I needed. I needed a lifeline to tell me that there was something more than the world that I lived in. And that was also when I started writing really bad, like really bad, like self-insert, like Dragonlance slash, you know, Tolkien fiction, you know, with a very, you know, dangerous blonde assassin who also had magical powers, you know, like that was very much like where my head was at. And she's so beautiful and so, so cold, so deadly. And honestly, I never outgrew it. So that was, that was very much the mode that my brain was in. And I think only when I got older, only when I after really I wrote my first trilogy and had moved into sort of the next chapter of my work that I began to stop echoing the books I'd grown up on and and really found my stride and my style as a writer and sort of figure out the figured out the things I wanted to write about, the themes that were important to me, and how much I loved writing characters who really weren't heroes and who who represent maybe a, a different shade in the moral 
spectrum. It is interesting that you were talking about how you had so many years of just kind of writing like the first the first act of a book. And then you would go on to by the time you really sat down and focused, find yourself writing trilogies and multi, you know, it's just like book after book after book within a world. When you did finally decide at, after turning 30, like, OK, this is I'm really going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to get past the first act. What changed? Was, was it really deciding on a process? Was there someone who you came across? Was it just sheer drive and will or? It was 100% giving into the the three act structure. It was a screenwriting structure that I learned in a class and was like, of course I can use this to write a book. It was understanding I needed that as a kind of map in order to write. Some people have that map kind of internally and they don't need it. I absolutely do. I always write to an outline and I always will. The exception is my short stories because I sort of tell them to myself as if I'm you know, sitting, sitting at the bonfire and telling the story. But I think also finding a way to say, it doesn't have to be a good book. It just has to be done. It doesn't have to be the best book. It doesn't have to be the great American novel. Every time that critical voice in my head spoke up and said, it's no good. No one's going to want to read this. This is pathetic. I would say, you know what? You are absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But no one's ever going to see it. And I sort of tricked my internal critic into letting me write the first draft of this book. And indeed, the first draft was really bad because first drafts are, but it had enough that was good and exciting for me that I was able to go back and excavate and revise a good book out of that first draft. And so you you have to banish perfection. You have to banish ambition in order to free yourself to write that first draft. And everything after that is kind of just fun because the beginning, middle and end are on the book and you can see it then, you know, you can see it and you can learn from it in a way that you will never be able to learn or understand a story from no matter how perfect that first chapter is, no matter how much you've revised it, you will not be able to see it the same way that you will once that first draft is done. And did you have a footing in the publishing world at this point? I mean, we've been lucky enough on this podcast to talk about with a lot of writers creatively, but for anyone who's listening, who has that first draft done, what? where does someone go? Where does someone submit that if you don't have a foot in the door? Okay. So I did not know anybody. <laughs> so I came off the slush pile, which means I came off of, you know, an agent reading my submission that came in via email. I would say, once you have that first draft, you're going to, you're going to revise it until it's good. And then you're going to send it until you can't really tell if it's good or bad and you need somebody to help you. And then you're going to give it to a couple of trusted friends uh, or critique partners who are going to help you make it even better and see the things that you missed. And then once you have a draft that's really ready to go out, then you're going to go and you're going to look into the acknowledgments of all the writers you like or all the people who are writing things that are similar to what you've written. And you're going to look their agents up and you're going to find out what those agents want, what they're looking for. And what you may think, too, is, okay, I thought I wanted this person, this particular agent at this agency is not looking for what I have written. Okay, I'm going to go look at another agent at this agency. Like, keep your mind open. It doesn't have to be a particular one. You're going to make a list of your first tier agents, the dream agents, then the people who you would still be excited to work with, but are maybe more of question marks. And then you're going to have the people who are like, well, if I have to. This is where I'll go. You're not going to query all the good ones first. (laughs) You're going to make it there, but you're going to start out just querying a few people. 
And your query is just as important as the book, right? So you're going to refine that too. You're going to refine that pitch. You're going to get other people to read it until it's as good as it can be. You're going to find out exactly what this agent is looking for and how they like to be addressed. Because again, all of these little details do make a difference when you're on submission. And then you're start, going to start querying in small batches. And if you don't get the response that you want, you will have an opportunity to tweak your pitch, to tweak your approach. If you query everybody at once, you're done. That's it. So you're going to refine that. You're going to treat this as carefully as you've treated writing the manuscript. And then hopefully you're going to land somebody who you really believe can be there for you because it's not just about making the big deal or getting the big deal. It's all of the negotiation that happens after. Because when you're in the process of making the initial deal, and I say this with a lot of love for my publisher, but that is the moment when they're courting you and they're going to throw everything at you about how great you are and how brilliant your book is and everything they're going to, going to do to market it. But the reality is that very of those things are <laughs> written into your contract. And so your agent is going to be the person who is fighting for you after the deal is done and making sure that this book doesn't fall by the wayside. And you're going to be writing as many books as you can because that's the best <laughs> that's the best shot you have at having a long career. I'll say, too, that this is how it works in traditional publishing. I don't work in indie publishing, but that is a completely different route, route to take and perfectly valid, but just not my thing. And I'm sure self-publishing and then is a whole other thing that yes. is, yes, whole That's what other I mean world. by indie, exactly. yes. Self-publishing, gotcha. independent publishing. Um, you also can go to editors without the representation of an agent. I personally wouldn't recommend this. You can absolutely do it, um, although not very many publishers are open to unrepresented submissions. But you can do it. But just keep in mind, like these contracts are thick and you're going to at least need an attorney who's going to be in there with you and helping you pull it apart and figure it out. And again, that means instead of getting to be the creative you are going to have to be waging the war that ordinarily your agent would be waging on your behalf. You're going to have to be mixing the business with the creative in a way that can be uncomfortable. It's good to have an advocate, even if you're giving up a percentage to them. And I absolutely would not have the career I have if it weren't for my agent, Joe Volpe, who is just, she's amazing. And, you know, if you are lucky, you will forge a partnership that really is going to take you not through the first book or through the first series, but through everything that comes after. Because that it's first, it's the dream of, wow, could you imagine if I published a book? But then, wow, could you imagine if I published a series? Holy shit, could you imagine if this series got picked up to be turned into like a movie or a TV series? And that's a whole other, yeah, that's a, a lot to walk through. And so to have a good team around you is incredible. But did you have, going back to that point, whenever you write, do you see you obviously lay the bones for the the book itself, but do you lay the bones then for the whole so books and books and stories and stories after that? Yes and no. You know, I always feel this tremendous envy toward like people like Brandon Sanderson who have, you know, he like envisioned a 36 book series when he was like 16 or something. And I, my brain does not work that way. When I was writing Shadow and Bone, my only goal was to to finish it, to finish a book for the first time and to maybe, maybe get somebody interested in it. And then about halfway through... I realized that I could see the shape of a series. I could see the shape of a trilogy, that it made sense in for the story to, to have a, a bigger form than it had in this single book. But I didn't know if anybody was going to buy it. I didn't know if anybody would want it. And so I took some notes and I finished the book in a way that would allow me to, to write the second and third if I had that opportunity. And then I got very lucky because young adult was really booming then and uh, and people wanted series. And so 
I was able to then build this. But I would say this to any writers who are out there who are considering it. One, never write the second book in the series until you finish the, until you sold the first one because it may not sell. Two, there is also a downside to being locked into a series if that series is not doing well or not performing the way you want it to. And three, like if that book sells really well and you <laughs> then you're in a great position to sell the second and third for more. So there's a certain element of of the mercenary in it. As we have moved through the Grishaverse, this collection of novels that I've written uh, and series that I've written, I have always been very careful to uh, kind of make small deals to say, okay, I'm going to write one book here, two books here, because I always want to be able to write the thing I want to write, which is, again, a tremendous luxury, but that I don't want to feel beholden to something just for the sake of the dollar, for the sake of maintaining the quote unquote franchise. So that has been up until this point in my career, the way that I have strategized. I think that strategy is shifting for me because of some of the books I want to write in the future. But um, there are a lot of different ways to build something like this. And if you have a vision, if you if you see this as something that, you know, I want to write 36 books or 12 books or 10 books that you can but that is not the way you're going to sell yourself with that first book. You are just selling that single story and making sure that it is compelling enough and exciting enough that people will want more from you. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And we're back. When it comes to characters, I think like obviously y- y- your words of in stories have now ended up on our screens. We're acknowledging the importance of representation and seeing ourselves on the screen and, and also being able to see our, or read ourselves in a novel. So you've been open about the fact that you have a degenerative bone disease and your character Kaz has one as well. How often do you pull from your own life and how important was that for you to include within your writing and now being able to have that on screen and as well as other characters that you really prioritize uh, that they're seen by others so others are seen seeing themselves reflected. So Kaz does not have a degenerative bone disease. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That was literally some... Okay, I really apologize. Don't apologize. Pull from the email that... (laughs) 
I got from. Don't, I'm really sorry. No, no, I, no, 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 no. Don't. There's no reason to apologize. Oh, use as a cane. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. This is, but this is an important distinction, and it's an interesting distinction. So, Kaz and I do share chronic pain, and we do both walk with a cane and with a limp. And we do both have to contend with that. It's just Kaz uh, broke his leg falling off of the top of a bank during a heist. And that is not what happened to me. That's not what happened to you. No, (laughs) I mean, as far as you know. Like, my hives are coming out. I truly am really sorry. No, oh my God, no. Look, I've written a lot of books and they're all very long. But, which is, I I always apologize to my critique partners when when they go out to them because they're very long. So Kaz is, you know, I, I wrote Kaz when I was coming to terms with my kind of own ableism and the fact that I had needed to use a cane for a long time, but I was really pushing against it. You know, I, and I think it was because I had, because you don't see a lot of young people or not that I'm so young anymore, but, you know, young people, middle-aged people, ordinary people walking around with canes or mobility aids on TV or film. You usually see a villain, usually a very wizened one who is, who, or, or a very old wise person who's, who's walking on a cane or walking with a cane or using a wheelchair. And so for me, I don't think I was actually very conscious of it, but I think when I created Kaz, who is, uh, absolutely terrifying, who is the person who you see him coming and you cross the street because you don't want to get in his way. I think I was absolutely creating a kind of wish fulfillment for me that that then allowed me to move through the world with a little more swagger as I used this mobility aid that has made my life so much better. And when it comes to, you know, represent uh, representation, diversity, inclusion, look, the reality is that most of us don't live in a straight, white, able-bodied world. Hopefully we're not just surrounded by straight, white, able-bodied people. There's unfortunately a thing that happens in culture where you begin to feel like romance and adventure and magic only belong to one kind of person. And my only goal is to make sure that I'm not sending that message, that I'm making it clear that everybody gets to fall in love. Uh, regardless of body type, regardless of skin color, regardless regardless of whether they walk with a cane, and that that my worlds are accessible to and exciting for any kind of person who approaches them. How old were you when you decided to start? Where you realized I need this cane now? And how old were you when you realized? I that- I was misdiagnosed with arthritis when I was quite young, when I was in my thirties, and it turned out to be AVN, which is avascular necrosis. And I was just in a lot of pain. <laughs> I was in a lot of pain all of the time. And I guess I would have been probably around 38, somewhere around there when I started using cane. I would have to like go back to my Instagram to figure it out. Oh, maybe older, maybe closer to 40. And it was just, it was hard to make that leap. But I actually posted a picture of the cane, let people know I was going to be using it. And it was a way of keeping myself accountable. I had been at this hotel in London, I was there for a tour date and I had a day off and I thought, oh, I'm going to go out exploring. And I got about three blocks from the hotel and it was just a very bad pain day. And I turned around and I went right back, not because I couldn't have gone farther, but because I didn't know if I'd be able to get back. And if I had had a cane, if I hadn't had this this ridiculous and misplaced idea about, about who uses a cane and what that means, none of which I was like processing consciously. I just was like, no, I don't need it. I don't need it. If I had been able to get past that shit, I would have had a very lovely day of sightseeing. And that was really when it hit me. And I was like, all right, enough of this. 
just go ahead and do it. And now, now, you know, it is very meaningful to me because I have a lot of young people in my lines who are using sticks and canes and mobility aids. And I feel like we're just kind of like this little crip army and I love it. It is, it is an interesting time when I feel like everyone can immediately see how people are affected by, you know, anything that we put out, whether it's a book or a movie or a TV show or a, a song right at that moment, you people can tell you how it makes them feel. And where it is a time people would read a book and kind of sit with their feelings, they can read a book and then immediately find the author and not only fall in love with their characters and the worlds that they create, but they can fall in love with the person who created that world. What are some of the impactful moments you've had with fans of your series that have kind of stuck with you over the years? That's always a sort of unique and beautiful thing. I had a kid tell me that he had worked up to coming out to his family by giving them Six of Crows and seeing how they responded to Jesper and Wylin and that that had made it easier for him to to come out to his family. I've had people whisper to me that they can't come out, but that these books provide a comfort for them. I've had, you know, Nina is 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 my girl who who looks like me, who's who's a big girl and who has, you know, and who who's fat and still sexy and beautiful and gets the guy. I mean, for a time, tragic things ensue. But like that, you know, who has powers and and gets to be the sexy spy without ever thinking about having to like slim down or or look a particular way. And I've had, you know, a lot of people who have been like, finally, a character I can cosplay. But the truth is when I set out to write, I'm not, it's not what it's in my head. I'm thinking about trying to tell the best story that I can and trying to draw from my own experiences in an honest way, trying to present trauma in an honest way, not being like a misery tourist. And, you know, if I'm talking about something like sexual abuse, being honest about it and and trying to make it clear that that's not something that that gets healed overnight. And, you know, again, there's this feeling of kinship with all of my readers who have gone on that journey with me, who've seen that part of me and who have then, you know, opened up to me sometimes in line, sometimes uh, at an event, sometimes online. I don't really read my DMs anymore. It just got very overwhelming at, at one point. But you know, I think a lot of people write off fantasy and science fiction as this kind of escapism, but the truth is those are places we can tell stories that we don't tell other places and where we can achieve a kind of catharsis that uh, can't always be expressed in a strictly realistic story. And so for people to leave my books and my stories feeling like that, like they're ready to lead a revolution, like they're ready to lead an army, like they're ready to wield magic is very important to me. Well, lastly, I just... Because that was so beautifully said. But I, I am curious about if there is one element. I mean, having been in, I was an actress on a show that was based off of a book series, but the book series came much earlier than the show. And, and so many, many things were changed. But I feel that for you, you, I'm sure, had the, an experience walking on a set where things were almost eerily like so specific. Was there anything in particular, whether it was a set or a costume or a casting or a scene where you were like, oh my gosh, it's like they just created a projector from my mind and it's here. First, I need to know what the show was. <laughs> I, I worked on a show called The Vampire Diaries. Oh my goodness. <laughs> of course. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm just realizing who you are. No. Okay, now that's super embarrassing because I watched like every episode and I was a full-on Claroline shipper. So that's there you hilarious. go. <laughs> okay, I blame Zoom and fuzzy pictures, You're but holy fine. shit. Okay. No, watched like every every episode. Enjoyed it immensely. Oh, I'm so glad. So delightful. And yes, I mean that that is a very different situation. I mean, look, at this point, 
I, and I knew this was going to happen, but I didn't know, I didn't know how, how this was going to play out. It was like, I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I knew that, that, that the images from the show and the actors playing the characters were going to take over who I had, the, the pictures in my head. And so I don't know exactly when that happened, but it did. But I can say that I got to do a cameo in the show, which was, you can definitely tell I'm not an actor. Like, I literally am just standing there gritting like a fool. Like, I'm amazed they were able to find a take where I didn't ruin the whole thing. But it was this huge group scene. It was like an all-day shoot. I had no idea how hard that is. But um, And I got to wear this beautiful purple kefta that Wendy Partridge, our incredible costume designer, made for me and, and also made me a corset, bless her. And they let me wear my Crocs because I really can't walk in like the beautiful little shoes that the actresses had. Like it was just not possible. But I was standing there and I had a very clear memory of writing this scene. It's when Alina, the main character, is brought before the king to demonstrate her powers. And I remember trying to figure out the choreography of it and how the Grisha would enter down the stairs and what the throne room would look like. And it, I did have a moment of, of, of feeling almost like I had left reality, like where I had, where there was, I remember this dream. I remember this scene. I remember writing this. And, and when you're writing, you can't help but be ambitious. You can't help but hope that maybe one day, you know, the readers will find it. Maybe one day it will get made into a show, but you, but those dreams are terrifying too, right? Because you know how unlikely it is that they'll come true. So then to stand in that dream and experience it, it was very emotional. And I had to keep just sort of blinking because I didn't want to mess up the beautiful makeup they'd put on me. But that was a very special moment. And I'm glad that it was captured on film because I'll always have it. I love that. Well, and I love that uh, it's just people can't, no one can get enough. uh, You know, you just have more and more and more coming out, not only on page, but on screen. So congratulations. And it truly is so lovely meeting you. And it's lovely to meet you you too. And I'm also now so glad I didn't realize what I was walking into because I would have been really super starstruck and dopey the whole time. Oh, God. Bless that. Oh, man. Lee, where can our listeners follow you on social media if they want to stay up to date with everything you got going on? The only place I really post regularly, and even then it's a little sporadic, is Instagram. But it's my uh, first initial L and then my last name, Bardugo. You can find me there. And I also have a newsletter that goes out through my website. So if you want to just go put LeeBardugo.com, you'll find all the information about my books and updates about tours and events and and the newsletter there. Thank you. Thank you. So just to hear a little bit more insight about how the actual publishing world works when, you know, when traditional publishing as well, when you don't have a foot in the door, that was just stellar, stellar advice. And man, I just really related to, you know, this whole concept of it's so easy to write down a first not even a first draft, but just a first act and not having, you know, the momentum or, you know, kind of the guts sometimes to just go ahead and get that whole first draft down. You know, especially as creatives, it's very easy, exactly what Lee said, to compare our first draft to someone else's 10th draft. So that was just the reminder that I needed today. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today. What a delightful hour this was. Please take care of yourselves and we will have an all new episode of Directionally Challenged waiting for you next week. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. 
Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with ACAST. Thank you.